Hello, welcome to Storied History. This is the second episode. Uh, we are so new at doing this that it is not a we, it is just me, and I haven't devised a good opening yet. So, welcome to the second episode of Storied History. I'm going to be speaking about the Battle of New Orleans. In the first episode, I covered the history of New Orleans up to the Battle of New Orleans, so just to give a very brief recap, the War of 1812 began because the British were occupied by Napoleon all over the planet. Some of the Americans saw an opportunity. So, believing that the British had their hands completely full, the United States invaded Canada. Thomas Jefferson had years earlier said this would be a mere matter of marching. We could walk up into Canada, take over the entire country without even firing a shot. Those Canadians would surrender, become part of the United States. We would be one big happy family. It did not work out that way. The U.S. invaded Canada in 1812, and we were defeated in almost every single battle. We were not defeated by the British Army because they didn't send anyone to help. We were not defeated by the Canadian Army because that did not exist. No. The American Army, now the most powerful the world has ever known, was repeatedly defeated by the citizen militias of Canada. And their allies, the First Peoples, the Native Canadians, especially the Iroquois Confederation. They took their own muskets and they pushed the United States back into the United States. Now, because they were Canadian, I am sure that they apologized while they were doing it, but they definitely did it. In fact, they did it three times. The U.S. invaded Canada in 1812, again in 1813, and again in 1814. We were defeated, we retreated three times. The war did not go well. The only bit of success that we had is we were able to occupy a city called York for approximately one week. But when the Canadians arrived, they forced us out. On our way out of the city, we burned it. Which now would be considered a war crime, but that is what we did. And the British got revenge for that one. By 1814, they had finally dealt with Napoleon. They put him on an island where he could never bother anybody ever again. Or so they thought. They were wrong. The British then sent a massive fleet across the Atlantic Ocean. The very first thing they do when they get here is invade Washington, D.C. and burn it to the ground. This was revenge for the Americans burning York and several other Canadian cities. York is still there, by the way. It is now called Toronto. After the British burned D.C., they go up to Riverdew, Baltimore, and they try to do the same thing there, but we stopped them before they could at a place called Fort McHenry. We know they couldn't get past the fort because they couldn't take the fort. We know they couldn't take the fort because they couldn't take the flag. Now, I know that, and if you are an American, you know that, even though you might not know it. By the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Francis Scott Key wrote those words while being detained on a British ship watching them attack Fort McHenry, trying to get to Baltimore, 1814. When they failed, they headed south towards New Orleans, 10,000 troops in 42 ships. To defend New Orleans, Andrew Jackson had 1,000 American soldiers. They had numbered 10 to 1, not enough men and not enough muskets to defend the city. How Andrew Jackson manages to do this, who helped him, and what happened is the subject of this episode. And before I do get started covering the battle itself, I do want to clear up a common myth, a misunderstanding, uh, that this battle was actually fought after the war was officially over. That is not technically true, uh, for several different reasons. Number one, the treaty had been negotiated 
but neither ratified nor signed, so technically the war was still in effect. And what is much more important, what we now know, what we didn't know for 200 years, although there was a theory, was that it would not have mattered whether or not the war was officially still on. What we do now know is that the actual orders given to General Peckenham, the commander of the British forces, were as follows. Ignore all reports of a treaty. Take and hold New Orleans at all costs. So they were going to do it anyway, no matter what the official word was. This was a secret for 200 years. It was only a few years ago that the British released the admiralty records to historians, and there, sitting amongst the innumerable documents covering logistics, troop movements, orders, supplies, all of that sort of thing, sitting amongst all of that was this kind of a bombshell explosive here you go. While we were negotiating a treaty, the British were ordering their generals to ignore it. So there you have it. And there you go. And here we go. Jackson shows up in New Orleans in November of 1814. He knows he is very heavily outnumbered, so the very first thing he does is ask for volunteers. And he gets them. Gets about 2,000 people volunteering. The problem is that the willingness to fight is not the same thing as the ability to do so. The other problem is equipment. Some of the volunteers have their own muskets, most do not. And what nobody had was cannons. To fix this problem, Andrew Jackson turns to organized crime. Lafitte, the pirate, commanded a fortress in the Bertarian swamps south of New Orleans that had never been taken. He had two dozen ships flying his colors. More than a thousand pirates sailed under his command, including 64 that were currently in prison and awaiting execution. Lafitte approaches Andrew Jackson and offers him a deal in return for a full pardon for all of his men, including the 64 that are about to be executed. Lafitte will give Andrew Jackson everything he needs to defend New Orleans. Jackson takes the deal. He declares martial law. He opens up the prisons. He releases the pirates. Lafitte holds to his word. He opens up the warehouses and Andrew Jackson gets all the flint, the muskets, the gunpowder, and of course the cannons that he needs to defend New Orleans. In some cases, they actually take pirate cannons off of pirate ships and use them to defend New Orleans. Nothing much happens over the next few weeks. Jackson is drilling his soldiers, trying to whip them into some semblance of a fighting force. The British sail into the back door of New Orleans on December 6, 1814. The back door of New Orleans are the lakes. Lake Bourne connects with the Gulf of Mexico. So the British sail into Lake Bourne, and the Americans send every single ship we have to stop them. The British have 42 ships. The Americans have five. At the end of the battle, the British have 42 ships, and the Americans have lost five. They now have complete, unrestricted, unfettered access to Lake Bourne and the swamps around it. But there was a trade-off. Back then, British power was very much naval-based, ocean-going vessels. You cannot sail an ocean-going vessel up to the shore of a shallow lake. It does not work. The draft is too deep. You will run aground long before you get there. So the British sail into the middle of the lake, where it is still deep enough to maneuver, and then they begin to row from the center of this very wide, shallow lake into the swamps around it. This is not an easy task. It is 15 miles. It takes between 15 and 20 hours to row one way. The British began offloading their men, their equipment, their weapons, their food, their cannons, even some horses are being rowed across 15 miles of water. 
and then they begin to hide deep, deep in the swamps. Because it takes so long to build up their forces, they're going to have to hide while they are doing it. Andrew Jackson sends out some scouts. The scouts are unsuccessful. We don't really know where they are. This would have gone on longer if not for the actions of one young British aristocrat. This young man did not like being cold and wet on Christmas. He thought it was his God-given right as an aristocrat to be warm and dry, even though all of his men were cold and wet, which is an absolutely horrible leadership philosophy, but that is what he believed. So he and some of his friends sneak out of the swamps and they take a plantation house. They thought it was Christmas Eve and they were going to get a big dinner. They were wrong. It was December 23rd. They missed it by a day. They kick over the door of the plantation. The owner surrenders immediately. The son of the owner does not. He runs out the back door, jumps onto a horse, rides hell-bent for leather all the way to the French Quarter. He finds Andrew Jackson, tells him, I know where the British are. Let's go. Let's get them. Now, you can say a lot of things about Andrew Jackson as a president. Some very, very bad. And a few good things. But whatever else he may or may not have been as a president, Andrew Jackson was an excellent soldier. He was arguably the most effective general that the United States had in between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. So upon learning where the British are, Andrew Jackson reacts immediately. By God, they will not sleep on our soil, he yells. And then he attacks at night in the dead of night. A moonless night, half in and half out of the swamps. This is not a formal Napoleonic-style battle where everyone lines up in perfect rows and shoots at each other until one side runs away. This was chaos. Pistols at close range, cutlasses in the dark. The Americans pushed the British off the little toehold they had gained, and then Andrew Jackson brings all of his men back to the Shalmet battlefield, several miles behind him. That is where the Battle of New Orleans was fought. That is where he chose to defend the city. So, a quick side note about geography. It's very difficult to do this just using audio, but I will give it my best shot. There is a strip of ground that runs alongside the Mississippi River. It's called, sometimes called the Sliver by the River. And that is the high ground. That is what the British are going to have to march upon to get from where they are to where they want to be. Meaning, New Orleans. There was a narrow choke point on the Sliver by the River, about halfway between where the British are, and the French Quarter. And it was there that Andrew Jackson chose to defend the city. At that choke point was a canal called the Rodriguez Canal. It was called that because it was part of the Rodriguez Plantation. It was called that because it was owned by a guy named Rodriguez. You see, history's really not that hard. So that canal represented a kind of half-formed barrier Andrew Jackson puts all of his men on the other side of the canal, and he sets them to digging. They dig the canal deeper, wider, and longer. They run it all the way from the river into the swamps themselves. So now it is a water obstacle. There is no high ground for the British to actually march upon. They dig the canal 15 feet wide and 8 feet deep. It's 15 feet wide because that is too far for a normal human being to jump. It is 8 feet deep because that is too deep for a normal human being to cross without getting everything completely soaking wet. And this is the era of black gunpowder. And if your gunpowder gets wet, it will not explode. And if your gunpowder will not explode, that means you are no longer carrying a musket, you are now carrying a club. So a water barrier, it was actually a formidable obstacle back then. The Americans, 1,000 soldiers, 2,000 volunteers, 
take out all the mud, anything else they could find. They pile it on the other side of the canal, five feet high, 20 feet thick. It's five feet high because that is the perfect height to stand behind and fire at the British without exposing your body to gunfire. It is 20 feet thick because nothing is going to knock through 20 feet of packed dirt. Not back then. Not even a cannon fired directly on point can penetrate the barrier that the Americans have erected. So between the canal they cannot cross and a rampart they cannot shoot through, this is a very difficult assault for the British, a very defendable position for the Americans. Everything that is about to happen was shaped and defined by the limitations of the technology available to them at the time. The first issue is, of course, black gunpowder. It cannot get wet. The second issue is that these are smoothbore muskets firing musket balls. You cannot aim a smoothbore musket firing a musket ball. Not a mini ball, those came later. I don't care what you think you've seen on TV and the movies. It is literally impossible. No one can do it at any skill level. The reason it is impossible is because the ball is smaller than the barrel itself. When you fire it, it bounces chaotically inside the barrel. Whatever the last bounce it takes, that's going to affect its trajectory. Because you cannot predict that, you cannot aim. Because you cannot aim, you do not try. It is a total waste of time. You point your musket in the general direction that you want to fire, and then you fire, without taking the time to actually line up a perfect shot. The third issue is that these are muzzle-loading weapons. It is not quick, and it is not easy to reload a muzzle-loading weapon. You put the butt of the musket on the ground, pour in your gunpowder, take an iron rod, pack it down tight, pull it back out. Take a little piece of cloth called the wadding, and your musket ball. Drop that on the powder, pack it down tight, pull the rod back out, now you're ready to fire. If you are very, very good, and the British are, you will fire three times in one minute. If you are not good, then the Americans aren't, you will fire twice in a minute. If you are very bad, and that would be most of the volunteers who've never actually done this before, it may take you a full minute to reload your weapon. That is a really big deal if you are in open ground. It is not that big of a deal if you're behind 20 feet of dirt, because all the Americans are going to do is squat down, kind of reloading at an angle. Even if it takes them a full minute to reload their weapon, nothing is going to hit them while they're doing it. When they are ready to fire, it is a total waste of time to aim, so you do not try. What the American is going to do is to pop up for just a fraction of a second, fire his weapon almost wildly, just pointing it generally at the British line, and drop back down. He will expose his head and his shoulders to the British fire for just a fraction of a second. This means it's going to be very, very difficult for the British to actually hit anything. By the way, these are not random facts that I'm just throwing at you. There is a point to all this. It is why everything happened the way that it did. The way the British have dealt with this system is accuracy by volume. This is the kind of thing you may have seen in the movies. Everyone lines up in perfect rows, points their muskets in the same direction, shoots at the same time. Someone is going to hit something. In order to increase the rate of fire, the British have three rows of soldiers. First rank fires, kneels down to reload. Second rank fires, kneels to reload. Third rank fire, first rank stand. The first rank cannot stand up until the last guys are done shooting. Otherwise, they're all going to get shot in the back. 
So what the British have done is they have created a system of perfect discipline. There is a man, an officer, behind the soldiers telling them exactly what to do. First rank fire, kneel, reload. Second rank fire, kneel, reload. Third rank fire, first rank stand, fire. The soldiers do what they're told, when they're told, and here's the key, only what they're told. If they are not told to do anything, they literally don't do anything. They will stand there and they will wait for orders, even if those orders are not quickly forthcoming. They will take no independent action. They will not even fire unless the officer behind them is telling them to fire. This level of discipline broke Napoleon. Here, it broke the British themselves. Two nights before the battle, there was an American traitor. This guy sneaks his way through the swamps, makes his way all the way to the British camp, talks his way past the sentries, talks his way all the way up to the command tent, and for an undisclosed amount of money, he tells them how Andrew Jackson has arranged all of his forces. And he tells them that the weakest part of the line is at the far end right next to the swamps. And that was 100% true. That was the weakest part of the line. That night. And then the next day. 1,000 Tennessee and Kentucky militiamen show up to assist Andrew Jackson in defending New Orleans. And he places them at the weakest part of the line. Which is now the most heavily defended part of the line. And they bring with them a new super weapon one that had never really been used on a large scale in warfare before. They're frequently named after Kentucky, even though technically they were manufactured in Pennsylvania and they were invented in Vermont. The volunteers bring the Kentucky Long Rifles. You can aim those, and these guys are very good at it, because that is how they feed themselves. If you are capable of shooting a squirrel out of a tree so that you can have dinner, and yes, you can eat squirrel. I've had it before. It was... okay. All right. <laughs> the best thing I could say about squirrel was that uh, she cooked it with a lot of onions and spices, so it tasted like onions and spices. <laughs> I really didn't like it, but that's just me. I, who knows? Maybe I'll try it again with a better recipe at some point. Anyway, they are very hard to hit. And if you are capable of hitting a squirrel out of a tree using a long rifle, you are easily capable of shooting a man on horseback. So Jackson, of course, immediately realizes what a powerful weapon this is. He does not concentrate the rifleman at the far end. Instead, he puts them throughout the entire line. And he tells them, shoot everyone on horseback, because those are the officers. And if the officers die, no one is giving orders. And if no one is giving orders... Under the British system, everything just stops. January 8th, 1815 is when the actual battle occurred. The British strategy was three-pronged. The first prong was they were going to send a small expeditionary force across the river uh, to the West Bank to attack a very weak American line. The American line on the West Bank was very weak because there was no canal and the rampart was only about a foot and a half, maybe two feet tall. So it's a lot harder to defend. The British put their boats in the water. Everything is just fine. They row out into the middle of the river where the current is a hell of a lot stronger than it looks. And all of the British boats and all of the British soldiers go that way, downriver. They are washed several miles downriver. They are now out of the fight. That prong has failed completely. 
The second strategy that the British employed was they attacked the worst-dressed people on the battlefield. I mean that literally. That's how they picked them. In this era of perfect discipline, the British assume that if you are not wearing a uniform, you have no discipline. If you have no discipline, you are not an effective soldier, you will break and you will run. So the British attacked the worst-dressed people on the battlefield. The British attack the pirates. When Jackson released the 64 pirates from prison, he did not let them go free. He conscripted them. He forced them to join up. But he does not trust them. He calls them hellish banditti. And they are under the command of a man named Dominic Yu, which might not actually be his real name. The British expect the pirates to break and run, but they don't. They hold their position, and they keep their guns going very well. They are not shooting muskets. They are shooting cannons. They are not shooting over the heads of the Brits. They're not shooting into the dirt. They're shooting dead on. And they're doing this rather quickly. Why are they so good with these cannons? They are their own cannons. They have literally taken pirate cannons off of pirate ships, and now the pirates are firing them at the British. They do such a good job that in the middle of the fight, Andrew Jackson actually yells out, If I had to storm the gates of hell itself, with Dominic as my lieutenant, and 50 Baratarians at my command, I would have no doubt about the assurances of my victory. It's very high praise. So that prong has failed completely. The third and final strategy that the British employed was they lined 8,000 men across that field and marched them forward to overwhelm the Americans with strength of arms and numbers. When the dawn broke on January 8th, that field was completely shrouded in fog. It was a working sugarcane plantation that had already been harvested. So there's nothing in the field. It is frozen mud, maybe an inch or two of sugarcane stubble, and fog. And that fog might be, we don't know for sure, but it might have been why the British chose that morning to attack. In England, when the fog shows up in the wintertime, in the mornings, it does not go away for a while. That's not true in New Orleans. When we get fog in the early morning winter hours. It's gone just a few after hours after sunrise. So when the British saw the fog, they began to plan their attack. On one side of the field, 8,000 British soldiers, crack troops who had defeated Napoleon. On the other side, 1,000 American soldiers, 2,000 volunteers, 1,000 militiamen, and 64 pirates. The Americans cannot see the British but they can hear them. When the trumpets sound the march forward, they can hear that. When the drums begin, they can hear that. And then very shortly, they can feel them. As 8,000 men march in perfect step across that field, the ground literally begins to shake under their feet. This does not happen quickly. The British are not running across that field. They are marching at a slow pace. It takes about 45 minutes at the pace they are marching to cross the field. And the entire time, the Americans are staring into the fog, hearing the British footsteps get closer, and the tremors by their marching feet get louder and stronger. A little past the halfway point of the field, a very stiff wind begins to blow. The fog begins to thin out. Forty to fifty yards away, the fog begins to clear, the British begin to emerge from the fog bank, and the Americans hold their fire. Andrew Jackson has told his soldiers, do not fire until you see the whites of their eyes. So the British, marching closer, now out of the fog, the Americans still hold their fire. 
They go up to about 20 yards away. The British officers call a halt, so they halted. As soon as they call a halted, all of the Americans fire, drop back down behind the rampart to reload. So the British return volleys goes right over their heads. The Americans are now reloading at their own pace. If you are capable of reloading quickly, hey, that's great, do it quickly. If you can't, that's okay, as long as you can get a shot off. In order to increase the rate of fire, Andrew Jackson was using children. Why children? Because they're short. Five feet high, that's the safe zone. I don't care if you're an Olympic athlete. If you've got to squat all the way down to keep your head at about the four-foot level, you are not going to move as quickly or as efficiently as an eight-year-old who's capable of running at full speed while keeping his head well below the danger zone. The kids are running behind the scenes, behind the lines, running orders, messages, reports, extra muskets, gunpowder, musket balls, flint, anything that is necessary. None of the kids even got injured. They were all totally fine. Don't worry about it. So the British stall against the canal. The Americans are cutting them to shreds. The British are finding it almost impossible to hit the Americans. This was because of a tactic that neither side anticipated. Uh, really, this is one of those weird little quirks of history. Nobody on either side figured this out before the battle began. But as soon as the battle began, every single American figured this out without having to be told what to do. And here's the tactic. So the Americans are squatted down behind the rampart, reloading and waiting for an opportunity to stand up and fire. The British are doing exactly what they did against Napoleon. First rank, second rank, third rank. Which means that from the American point of view, there is a man 30 yards away yelling fire. And you can hear him. All you have to do is wait in between the orders to shoot, stand up quickly, fire, drop back down. You're going to be totally safe. This tactic was spectacularly effective. And it is the primary reason why the American casualties were so low. The British casualties were so high because they simply could not cross that canal. Because of the action, or inaction rather, of a man named Mullins. Colonel Mullins was another aristocrat. Back then, by British custom and law, the first son of the landed gentry inherits everything. Literally, they were not even allowed to split up those estates even if they wanted to. In order to keep them intact, it was by law that the first son, or the closest, oldest male relative, inherits everything. The second son, if the first son still lives, may join the clergy, and the third son joins the military, even if he doesn't want to. And Mullins doesn't want to. He's not good at his job, because he's never had to do a day's work before his father bought him, literally, here's the money, bought him a commission, and now he's a colonel in the British Army. So, he's given a simple unit, a logistics unit. His unit was ordered to build fascines, giant bundles of sticks and sugarcane stalks. The idea was that they were going to roll these in front of the British soldiers to absorb the American fire. Roll them straight into the canal. The British could then cross the canal without getting their powder wet. Mullins literally doesn't do it. He does not make what he was ordered to make. And I do not mean that he doesn't do it himself. He doesn't even tell his men to do it. So the fascines do not get made. His unit was also ordered to build ladders to help them cross the canal and climb the rampart. They do build the ladders. 
And then that morning, they leave them five miles away in the British camp. None of the equipment necessary to cross that canal actually showed up on the battlefield. Realizing what was happening, one of the generals actually yelled out, Mullins, you son of a bitch! If I live to see tomorrow, you will be hanging from a tree. He did not live to see tomorrow. In the space of two hours, there were 2,000 British casualties. In the same amount of time, the Americans have lost less than 20. A very one-sided victory for the Americans. And it wasn't just the British foot soldiers that were dying, the officers were dying as well. General Keane goes down, General Gibbs. Pakenham was shot off his horse. He gets up onto another one, called out to his elite troops, to the 93rd Highlanders. Forward, brave 93rd, you will soon have your revenge. Then he was killed. Finally, at the very end of the battle, it comes down to one man, one last British general, John Lambert. Lambert was another aristocrat who had spent the Napoleonic Wars watching other men lead British troops to victory. Now, in the face of the worst defeat, the most one-sided defeat that the British Empire had ever suffered, he does not know what to do. So John Lambert plays for time. He sends a message to Andrew Jackson asking for a pause, for a break in the fighting so that they may collect their dead and their wounded. But at the same time he gets this message, Jackson gets word of what has happened on the West Bank, on the other side of the river. The British troops were hours late, but they got there. They broke the American lines. The Americans on the West Bank are in full retreat. For the British, it is a three-mile walk to Algiers Point, directly across from the French Quarter, where there are boats that can be commandeered. There is no time to organize a defense, no men in the vicinity to mount one in any case. Jackson now knows this. Lambert does not. And Jackson knows Lambert doesn't know it because he asked for a pause on both sides of the river. So Jackson responds to Lambert's request for a pause. We will pause on the east bank. But on the west bank, we continue. It's a lie. Jackson is giving the impression that the same devastation that has occurred in the east has also occurred in the west. And he is telling Lambert that the only way to save his men is to order a full retreat on both sides of the river. Not realizing that the British troops have been victorious on the west bank, Lambert takes the bait and orders both sides to retreat. And the British, disciplined as always, follow their orders. On the east bank, where the main battle was fought, they fall back from a bloody field. On the west bank, they fall back from an empty one. They literally retreat from nothing. And so once again, just like in 1699, when Bienville, one of the founders of New Orleans, told the English captain, this is not the Mississippi River, the British were turned back from New Orleans by something of a deception and a lie. The moral of this story is, if you are visiting New Orleans and you find yourself in Harrah's Casino, sitting across the poker table from an Englishman with a king and a queen, then bluff him, because history is on your side. All right, folks, that's the second episode. That's the story of the Battle of New Orleans. The, the, I will be uploading something else shortly. I'm not sure. It may be about pirates. I really haven't decided yet. I uh, do hope you have enjoyed this. There will be more to come. Not all, all of them will be in long form. 
Uh, some of them are literally just going to be a few minutes, just the stories from history and about subjects that I find interesting, little anecdotes, interesting stories, facts, datum, uh, stuff that catches my ear, stuff that I just makes me smile, that I just enjoy. So if you would like to hear more, uh, feel free to subscribe, uh, rate the podcast, I think, like, share, I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to say, like, share, and subscribe. Yeah, there you go. Do that. I do hope you have enjoyed it, and I will be here for the next one. And at some point, I will develop and come up with a better intro and a better closure than this has been. <laughs> Thank you for listening.